Well, some couples go all out to celebrate their wedding anniversaries. They ride black stallions on the coasts of Ireland or something like that, or they, they hit the slopes in the Swiss Alps, and then others just keep it more low-key. They might uh, have lunch at a local diner, or they might ride their bikes together. I guess it all depends on the couple, or you could maybe say the couple's wallet. So I read a, a little article titled, 50 Ways to Celebrate Your Anniversary That'll Remind You Why You're Together in the First Place, some of which are inappropriate, won't share those, but some are actually amusing. So here are a few of the amusing ones, maybe try these out. Play laser tag and show all those preteens who's boss. That sounds fun. Dress up and make a shot-for-shot remake of the royal wedding, which sounds very expensive to me. Um, The next three go together, and they're actually pretty amusing. Take a trip to the nearest antique store and buy each other weird presents. Take a trip to the nearest taxidermy retailer and buy each other weirder presents. (laughs) Take a taxidermy class and really get into it with the weird presents. I think those are funny. Um, One more. Go on a 10-day mission trip to Russia, and one of you stays home. Actually, that wasn't on the list. I added that one because that's what Christine and I did on our first anniversary. I went to Russia with the missions team, and she stayed home. So that's romantic, right? (laughs) Now, before you fire me because you love Christina so much, we did agree on that together before I went. But I don't like being away from Christina. I'm kind of like a lost puppy. I need her uh, around. She helps me. But when I returned from Russia, I was so happy to see her again, to be with her, to be in her presence. Our reunion restored our joy of being together. Oftentimes when people come to Christ, it's new and it's exciting. And Jesus feels so close and he feels inspiring. But inevitably, their affection and devotion are challenged. Along comes busyness responsibilities, suffering, persecution, temptation, sin. Basically, life happens and closeness with God is threatened. And if we're not vigilant to delight in the presence of God, we will find ourselves far from God. Dispassionate with Scripture, the sacraments, prayer, corporate worship, fellowship with the saints, marriage, sanctification... At first, our drift from God may feel unsettling, uh, but in time, we become comfortable with our spiritual apathy. How dangerous. How dangerous. Some of you, I just want to say, are close to God, and you're experiencing the increasing delight of His presence. Yet some of you are far from God. You have turned aside from his word and cheated him of much glory. Will you return to him? Some of you hunger to be closer to God. Others of you are comfortable in your spiritual apathy and you don't realize how far you have drifted and sadly, how many blessings you miss out on that aren't yours. Oh, that Jerusalem church would hear God's call to return to him so that we may experience together the supreme joy of God returning to us and blessing us. This is what revitalization is all about. We want the joy of God's presence. So we must run back to him as a church. Now, I believe that 
uh, in the past 10 years or so, God has been revealing to Jerusalem church how far it had drifted from him and his word and is being very gracious and tender to return in power and beauty because we are returning to him and his word. If we stay on this trajectory that we are on, God will bless us. So the passion of my heart, and I know the passion of some of yours as well, is to champion Christ so that more and more people can run to him to experience in him delight, the delight of his presence. But, but not all of you are there. Not all of you are there. So we trust God to work in your heart, in our hearts. The message today is so simple so easy to understand, so easy to remember. This message is the heartbeat of this church. Here it is. Return to the Lord, and he will return to you and bless you. That's not so hard to remember. That's where we're going. I want you to remember that. I want you to do that. If you return to the Lord, he will return to you, and he will bless you. He will bless you. Return means repent of your sins. And since it's returning to the Lord, it's also trusting in Him as your greatest blessing, as your greatest joy, as your greatest pleasure and strength and vigor and endurance. Oh, that we would together, as, as one people, one local church, by our closeness with the Lord and each other, May we show people, show the world, show our community that returning to God yields greater pleasure and blessings than wasting away in the distant land of momentary sinful pleasures. The greatest blessing of returning to the Lord is the returning presence of the Lord, the returning closeness of the Lord. Please remember that. A return from Russia brought a renewed joy in my wife. A return from sin to the Lord will bring a renewed joy in the Lord. We're heading into Malachi's fifth argument, which addresses Israel's offensive worship practices, a theme that we encountered um, before in his book back in argument two. And here's how I'd like to approach the passage. I'd like to unpack verses six through 12 and answer this question, how shall we return to the Lord? How shall we return to the Lord? The, the Holy Spirit needs to help us here because some of you are close to the Lord. You're very close to him. You're growing in his word and you're diligently seeking to obey him. And this message will be for you a sweet reminder and encouragement to draw even closer as God is, is close to you and loving you. And, but others of you, see, others of you are far from God. You have turned aside from his word. You have grown lax in obedience. And the challenge for you is different. You need to hear this as a wake-up call. A warning that hopefully shocks you into facing the reality of your spiritual apathy. Now, how do you need to hear this? Well, I'm not sure. The Holy Spirit has to help each of us hear this in the way that we need to. So just be humble just listen, allow the Holy Spirit to guide you so you know how to hear this. 
Here are four simple steps of how we can return to the Lord so he returns to us and blesses us. God said, return to me and I will return to you. Which really is the entire theme of this entire series. Um, And Israel was asking this question, how shall we return to you? But that wasn't a humble and heartfelt question. Here's why. The Lord had just said, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. That's key. They had the law. They had the prophets to tell them how to return. Their question was disingenuous. It it grew out of uh, flagrant faithlessness and, and willful waywardness because... If they had paid attention to what God had revealed to them, they would have known how to return to him. Their departure from God's word blinded them to how far they had drifted from God. And saints, it's the same thing in the evangelical church of the United States of America. Studies are showing biblical illiteracy is epidemic among professing evangelical Christians. And perhaps that's why uh, the new Barna study showed that 61% of practicing Christians agree with ideas rooted in new spirituality. 54% resonate with postmodern views. 36% accept Marxist ideas. And 29% believe ideas based on secularism. Though many self-identified evangelical Christians claim to believe the Bible, their doctrine, worldview, and lifestyle show they have very little idea of what's actually in the Bible and how incongruent they are with the Bible. And this is why books like The Shack and Heaven is for Real and Jesus Calling top the Christian bestsellers list because so few uh, professing Christians have a robust biblical theology, a worldview, a discernment that aligns with God's word. Like Israel in Malachi's day, so many professing Christians today don't even know how aberrant and unbiblical their theology and worldview are because they have turned aside from Scripture. The call to to return to the Lord is at the same time a call to return to His Word as the means to know Him, as the means to know His will. Here's where the journey back to the Lord begins. Number one, trust His immutable and gracious character. Trust His immutable and gracious character. Immutable means unchangeable. God said in verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. God is and will always be exactly what he has always been. Did you get that? James 1.17 says, There is no variation or shadow due to change with the Lord. God says in Psalm 89, verse 34, I will not alter the word that went forth from my lips. Numbers 23, verse 19, teaches that God does not change his mind. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come 
to an end. Hebrews 6, verses 17 and 18 teach that the character of God's purpose is unchangeable. In fact, he guarantees it with an oath. Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Lord never changes. Theologian A.W. Pink explained God's immutability like this. God is immutable in his attributes. Whatever the attributes of God were before the universe was called into existence, they are precisely the same now and will remain so forever. Necessarily so, for they are the very perfections, the essential qualities of his being. The attributes of God can no more change than deity can cease to be. Why is God's immutability important? Because God's justice is immutable, and therefore how he responds to evil is immutable. And God's sovereign grace and covenant are immutable. Therefore, his kindness and favor towards his chosen people is immutable. God said, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Why didn't God consume wicked Israel in all of their rebelliousness? Because he had made a covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God is bound by his holy and immutable character. Therefore, he preserves a remnant in from Israel. He promised to bring the Messiah from Israel. So redemption depends on the immutability of God's gracious covenant with Jacob. God's justice and grace are equally immutable. Therefore, God would bring judgment to Israel to display his glorious justice, but he would also preserve a remnant which would display his glorious grace. Now, let me ask you a question. What gives you any hope that tomorrow morning when you wake up, you will wake up still saved and loved by God? Is it your great commitment to God? Or is it God's great commitment to you? It is the immutability of God's character and promises that gives believers comfort and hope and peace and assurance and joy. When you are united to Christ by grace through faith, all the promises of God, the great promises of God are yours in Christ, never to be revoked. Never to be somehow pulled and changed because God changed his mind. Run back to God because his justice is immutable and his grace is immutable. Number two, turn towards his word and keep his statutes. I've already commented on this, so I'll keep this point brief. Verse seven summarizes the crux of Israel's problem. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. That was their problem. They turned a blind eye to God's word. You can't return to the Lord without returning to his word and committing yourself to obeying all of it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Israel was far from God's word and therein far from God himself, but God graciously called to them and beckoned them back, return to me. Now, years ago, Christina and I, we were on our way to our friend's house in uh, Cranberry. 
uh, out in the Pittsburgh area to have dinner. And, and I knew the way to the friend's house. I had been there before. This was not strange territory. And for some very mysterious reason, I veered onto the turnpike ramp. And I ended up, big mistake, by the way. There's no legal way to reverse that uh, or safe way. So we were almost there. And, and now we're driving from the Cranberry exit to the Beaver Valley exit. And if you know that area, it is 15 miles away. You can't turn around. There was no way. We were trapped, heading away from where we needed to be. Couldn't turn around. Needed to be at our friend's house. We had the rice. And the rice was central to the meal. So there they were, waiting on the sharks to come buffoon Jonathan's jumping on the turnpike with the rice and running away. I was angry. I was sinful. I was traveling at large speeds. I probably hit 90 miles per hour, if not more. We got to the Butler Valley exit, and do you know what I did? I turned the car around. I got back on the turnpike. And I headed the 15 miles back to get to our friends and the dinner with the rice. The rice eventually made it. I'm sure it was good. That's what it looks like to return. We, are, we were at a certain point, and then we wandered off from that point, and then comes the point where we turn around and we head back to where we should have stayed, where we should have been. Now, repentance is different from confession and guilt. Guilt is our fault for doing something sinful. Confession is admitting our fault and our guilt that we've done something sinful. But repentance is when we change course, when we turn from sin and head to God. That's repentance. There are a lot of people who are going to admit that they are guilty. There are a lot of people that are going to confess their guilt and wrongdoing, but then they stop there. That's as far as they take it. They never actually change course. They never actually turn. God was calling Israel to completely change course, to leave their wickedness and return to him. The sad thing was Israel was so far from God that they couldn't even admit what they were doing wrong. Listen to the audacious questions that Israel was asking. How have you loved us? How have we despised your name? How have we polluted you? How have we wearied him? How shall we return? How have we robbed you? How have we spoken against you? They didn't get it. That doesn't sound like people who understand what's going on spiritually. How dangerous. Folks, every one of us can know Scripture better. Every one of us in here. And many of us here today are striving to that end. I mean, we're, we're pouring into Scripture. We, we want to know God better. And so we go to His Word and, and we're, we're feasting on it. And we know we should do it more, but we're in that process. But my educated guess is that a bunch of you, you don't study your Bibles on your own. You just don't. Nor are you really that concerned or interested in obeying all that you should be studying there but aren't. And some of you know, you know deep down inside of yourselves that you are starving yourselves of God's word as it sits right there underneath your nose. 
day after day. And that's why you miss so much of what God is calling you to know and to do. That's why you have so little discernment. That's why you have so little wisdom. You don't even know what's going on because you have turned aside from God's word. Now, to be fair, we all do that to a certain extent, right? We all do to a certain extent, but some of you have so deeply neglected God's word that you are blind to so many things that need to change inside of you. Your life would be filled with so much more pleasure and more blessings if you do two things, return to God's word and commit yourself again to following all of it. You can't return to God unless you're ready to do those two things. Number three, do not rob God of the glory he is due, but rather offer him pure and passionate worship. Verses eight through 10. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse. For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And we saw this theme earlier in Malachi. Israel was neglecting temple worship, robbing God with their insufficient tithes and contributions. Will man rob God? Think about that question. Man robbing God? Robbing is theft either by force or by deception. Israel had a facade, and it was a deceitful facade. They withheld glory and honor from God by neglecting pure and passionate worship. A tithe was literally a tenth. A tenth of the produce Israel had taken from the the land, a tenth uh, God commanded them to give to accomplish several things, to support the priests and the Levites in the work of the temple, the ministry of the temple, to meet the needs of the poor within Israel, and to supply God's people with the resources to celebrate the presence of God. So, so these store, this storehouse being filled was really important. Israel was withholding some, a lot, the full measure of tithes and contributions. The storehouse was empty Therefore, the temple was deficient, which created undue hardship for the priests and Levites and the poor, and then diminished this celebration that the people should have been having for the presence of God. Now, no doubt, economic hardship, that's difficult. That's difficult. But economic hardship is no reason to not fill the storehouses with the first fruits of the land. Israel was spiritually callous. They failed to love God, and they failed to love their neighbor Israel was in a bad place. An empty storehouse indicated empty hearts. Had Israel forgotten Proverbs 3, 9, and 10? Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Had they forgotten that, that faithfulness to God brings great blessing for them as a nation? Israel trivialized temple worship and stole from God by holding back what they should have given to him. The whole nation was breaking covenant with him and therefore was cursed by God, a theme that we saw back in chapter 1, verse 14. 
Now, we've, we've probably all heard message on tithing. So this might be surprising for you to hear me say this, but tithing is obsolete. It's obsolete. Tithes were a part of the Mosaic law, which has been fulfilled in Christ. 10% mandatory given, giving is not mentioned in the New Testament. That being said, the New Testament does prescribe giving to support a local church ministry, and certainly generosity should not be less now that we are in the New Covenant than what it was in the Old Covenant. So a tenth is probably the minimum point from which we we launch. But a tithe is no longer mandatory. You're not going to find that in the New Testament. Verse 10 is more profound than give more money to your church. That's not where I'm going. Here's what I think it's getting at. Give God pure and passionate worship according to his word. That's what I think the point is. Bringing the full tithe represents knowing how scripture instructs us to worship God and then worshiping him joyfully and very precisely in the way that he has prescribed. God is essentially saying, stop robbing me. Give me the glory and praise and honor that I'm due. Give me worship that is worthy, my great name. And I'll bless you. I'll bless you. This brings us to number four. Pursue your greatest joy and blessing in God himself. If you get any point, my friends, please get this point. This is an exciting point. Israel had turned aside from God's statutes, had habitually disobeyed God by polluting his holy temple with their objectionable sacrifices of worship and robbed God by withholding from him uh, tithes and contributions of worship. Israel was far from God, but yet God kindly summoned them back to him. Now, being far from God does yield certain pleasures. It does. But to experience the superior, lasting pleasures and blessings of God, you must be close to God. You won't experience those things far from God. Listen to how God put it in verses 10 10 and 11. Thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. God told Israel to test his trustworthiness, to test his goodness. Now, other portions of scripture say not to test God. But here God commands it. If they would return to him, he would honor his loving covenant and he would bless them. Now, a drought was likely in view. Uh, Locusts were likely in view as the devourer that were destroying their crops. Whatever economic turmoil this may have meant or was going on at the time, uh, it was their spiritual mutiny that caused this. They had gotten themselves into this problem. Uh, If they returned to God, God promised to bless them. He would open the windows of heaven, or you could say open the floodgates of heaven, which seems to mean rain, and rain would have brought agricultural uh, bounty, which would have meant economic prosperity and success. Now, I think that this ultimately is fulfilled in Christ. 
who is our prosperity and success and blessing, who conquers the great devourer, the spiritual devourer, and produces fruit in his people, who descended through the the window of heaven to bless those who trust him. Here's what God is getting at. If you return to me, I will return to you and I will bless you. I will bless you. Now, ask the question, why would anyone leave sin in order to return to Christ? Why would we do that? Because when they see the supremacy of Christ and the greater pleasure of and blessings they receive in Him, they want to return because they're missing out if they don't. So they want to flee to Christ. They want Him. People will rush to Christ when they realize that the pleasure of his presence is better than the pleasures of sin, when they count suffering for holiness' sake, richer gain than the pleasures of wickedness. It is only when you see the supremacy of Christ that you will return to him. It is only when you see that all of God's commands and statutes and law are a way for you to enjoy Christ more fully and therein experience superlative joy. If we're not careful, we'll misinterpret verses 10 through 12 as health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. That if we return to God and obey Him, then He'll make us healthy, He'll make us wealthy, He'll make us prosperous here on earth. There is much better news than that. That is not gospel. Now stay with me here. What is the greatest blessing of returning to the Lord? What would that be? What is the greatest blessing of returning to the Lord? Now, how you answer that and what what comes into your mind will reveal whether you understand the gospel or not. If your greatest blessing of returning to the Lord is the material blessings of verses 10 through 12, then you're probably an idolater who is simply using God to get what you really want, health, wealth, and prosperity in this life. So let's say your business is failing or your marriage or your health or whatever and you come upon verses 10 through 12. If you respond inside, hey, if I return to the Lord and I pay attention to his word, then I could make a serious amount of money. Or maybe my marriage will be awesome or my chronic pain or illness will be gone and I'll feel like I'm 19 again then you've missed the entire point. You don't understand. God is not a genie who exists to grant us our carnal desires. Here is why I don't think material blessings are ultimately in view with Malachi, the primary focus. This is simple, but it's easy to miss. God said, return to me, to me, to me. I will Return to you. The primary blessing of returning to the Lord is having the Lord return to you and you enjoying the Lord. You enjoy his presence. I I think if we're honest about what the entire book of Malachi is about, it's not about Israel being restored to some economic or military force, but rather Israel enjoying and reflecting the greatness of God's name. The glory of God and enjoying him in Jesus Christ is the point of Malachi, is it not? I think land of delight mentioned in verse 12 is not primarily about territory in the Middle East nor about national Israel. 
I think verse 12 ultimately, ultimately points to delight in the person of Christ and the eternal inheritance that we have in him. We are blessed, not when we are rich in this life, but when we are rich in God. We are, we are not a land of delight because we live in America, but we are people of delight because our greatest inheritance is Jesus Christ and eternal life and happiness with him. Why is repentance desirable? Why is returning desirable? Because it's better for our bank account? Because it's better for our marriage? Because it's better for our health? No way. Not in a million years. Returning to God means enjoying God most. And then all the other blessings that he gives, which should be delighted in and enjoyed. Now, I don't want to miss the fact, I want to be very careful here, that obeying God's commands does absolutely bring us temporal blessings. God lavishly provides for his, his children. Obeying God oftentimes will actually prosper your business, will improve your marriage, and may actually give you better health. But we must also realize that obeying God gets people fired too. And it actually increases friction in the marriage too. And it may not actually stop the terminal illness from coming and making you feel miserable and maybe even taking your life. However, obeying God always always brings greater joy, peace, contentment, and comfort, even when the temporal blessings are gone. God gives something much better than temporal blessings. He gives us himself. Suffering does not necessarily mean that you are far from God. Not necessarily. It may, but it might not. Nor does it mean that God is not giving you radical blessings. Because you're suffering. It doesn't mean that. So let's end here. The greatest reward of returning to the Lord is the delight we experience in Him and how our delight in Him magnifies Him for the world. When God's people return to Him and He pours out blessings upon them, then verse 12 becomes reality. Listen. Then all nations will call you blessed. For you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. The USA is a land of delight in the world. But verse 12 is not talking about the United States of America. God was speaking to Israel and by extension the church of Jesus Christ. Who is most blessed? Not Americans, Christians. Even the ones in the toughest places of the world who have Christ, have nothing else, and are in danger of their lives. Who is most blessed? Christians. And Christians and Americans, that's not the same thing. Everyone united to Christ by faith is most blessed because God's covenant blessings are for them exclusively forever. As Israel watched the surrounding pagan nations uh, prosper, they questioned God, yet God was essentially saying, do you think that the pagan nations around you are prospering in their evil? Justice is coming. When you, my covenant people, return to me, the day will come when the pagan nations will recognize your blessedness. When God's people return to him, when God's people return to his word, when they glorify him by enjoying him, 
people notice. People notice. What does running back to the Lord communicate to people? If you would do it. What does pure and passionate worship communicate to people around you? What, what, what does radical generosity in the name of Jesus Christ do for people around you? When people who live holy lives attribute every single blessing to the loving care and provision of their Father God, what do people think when they see and hear that? Let the nation see that our closeness to God and His Word and joyful obedience is our greatest joy that makes us happy in Him. So that they will call us blessed. And they will call us blessed because they know we know the Lord. Ultimately glorifying God because of the favor he gives us. Let the nations see that our gladness is knowing God. However far you are from God, imagine the message that you would send to people around you if you returned to the Lord and you found your greatest joy in his presence. Imagine what a statement that would make for people. And even if you're like way far from God, you have neglected his word for so many years, you don't even know where to start when studying his word. You don't know what's in it. You you haven't been following him. Imagine how incredible it would be for you to come alive and to start returning back to, to the Lord and his word and how the transformation of you would communicate his glory. Just imagine. Oh, how powerful that would be. Return to the Lord, and he will return to you and bless you. Father, thank you that you have given us amazing promises that if we would humble ourselves and run to you, you would return to us and bless us. Oh, God, that we would know Jesus and stay close to him. And ultimately, God, I love that it is not our running back to you, but your grace pulling us back to you. You woo us back to you. We may stray. We may sin. This could have been a horrible week. I've been wrestling deeply with sin. I know there's at least one other person. God, we've all wrestled. Help us run back to you so that we can experience your return presence as you restore to us the joy of our salvation, as you work inside of us by your spirit. And God, may the nation see that we love you and are blessed, radically blessed in Christ, all for your glory. Amen.